of a young man who is who's deeply into a sport for and, and particularly maybe in our minds deeply into training to be part of the AFL and a major team, we don't have many concepts of that person also having an enthusiasm for the arts or even a way into the arts. What was your way in? Ah, oh, look, I, I mean, I'm out from in the suburbs, basically. You know, I really have no... I had no, you know, relationship to the arts at all. I love performing... And I would say that what I really understood from a pretty early age that is if you are in the middle of a space and there are a lot of people around you, in some ways it actually translates from performance, from sport to performance and back again. I had a real, as a, when I was playing football, I had a real sense of the occasion of being watched and I absolutely translated that whole sort of dramaturgy of sport to all the work that I've made as an artist, that whole sense of relationship between uh, doing and playing and connecting and having that observed and watched and there to be a, a, a sort of a, a, a level of participation in it. And I, I really felt that quite deeply. So when I walked on stage as an actor, which is how I started, um, in some ways, it, it, there wasn't really much different, except for me, uh, the audience were out there, not all around. And in most of my performances, when I started becoming a director, I put the audience all around, so it felt like being in a footy field. Mm. I mean, I, I, again, when I think about my, my first ventures, having started singing at four years old, um, and having a singer and entertainer stand-up comic father, um, it probably wasn't such a leap for me, but I do remember that not being able to be to excel at sport, which I have to emphasise is very different for kids with asthma now. The treatment is much, much better than when I was a kid and having the treatment, it really did limit you what you could do. But not being able to be a star at sport, which is where the stars were, you know, again, out in the burbs in, in the north of Adelaide, um, it wasn't academic prowess that was going to earn you pop popularity and, yeah. and stardom. It was actually being a, a, a track and field or a sports star of some kind. Um, not being able to do that, when I picked up the ukulele that my dad had bought me when I was eight but couldn't play because it was, uh, it was too hard on the fingers and took the ukulele to school one day and played Jailhouse Rock at primary school at 11 years old in the middle of the yard, I realised what a key to success it was. I had crowds flocking and I felt just like the sports star. You yeah. know, it was a real reinforcement. So there's, there's that, isn't it? When I think about one of the other great games that I enjoy watching, which is um, singles tennis, when I think about what those guys do just over there in that arena with tens of, again, you know, tens of thousands of people watching them and that a solo match, a singles match can go on for four to five hours without any contact with anyone, I understand that it is the same as solo performing. You've got to have such confidence. There's a whole other world in your mind and it's not just the athleticism and the... And the, the ability to play the game and the skills of the game, it requires a kind of mental fortitude that's unbelievable. Yeah, I think the connection's ego. You really have to have a very strong ego to be doing both of those things. And I also think that the downfall of ego is often vanity. You see that you see successful sports people, successful artists whose vanity overwhelms them. It actually corrupts the work that they're doing because they pay too much attention to other things. And you see somebody like Roger Federer, you know, I think he's a fantastic tennis player, and you look at the 
way that he conducts himself. And his, his vanity is channeled absolutely into his performance, which makes it quite productive. It, he doesn't have a vanity that goes outside of that. Whereas I think probably some of the younger Australian tennis players, they have a vanity that's really they're struggling <laughs> with to, to kind of... You know, and I guess it's part of being young, but it's also actually part of the way in which they're made, the, 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 the ego that they require to achieve to such a level. I think in some ways it's, you know, it's, it's, it can be very flawed and can cause problems. Yeah, and I guess that's too... I think we'd all agree as artists that... In, inside a, a production, even, even a solo artist, I think if they're not able to recognise the value of the team behind them that's turning on the lights and turning on the sound and, and ushering the people into the performance, if they don't value that, things can get out of proportion as well. Yeah. Um, at this stage, I'd like to invite Bijoy up onto the stage to talk about him and maybe something that you um, didn't know about him. Please welcome Bijoy Jane. It's great to have you here. I understand that you've been enjoying Melbourne. I'm not sure whether you were aware of last weekend and the the um, fervour of a grand final weekend in Melbourne. I missed that. I, I, <laughs> I, I missed that. I was here, but I was in Sydney. So I took the car out uh, to the airport and uh, enjoyed Sydney. I'm it's not... I'm not because uh, I think the Australian football or the football played here is quite particular. It is very, very particular, as, as are the fans. The <laughs> yeah. fans are also very particular. But, I mean, it is, it's the one time, I think, or one of the many times, I suppose, but here in Melbourne it is one time when um, the atmosphere is very, very much like a festival. I mean, people are dressed up in their colours yeah. and I noticed people's houses were decorated everywhere with the colours of the teams. It's really, really infectious and a, and a great feeling. But how interesting that here in Melbourne last weekend we had that Festival of the Boot and, uh, and, this, and this weekend we've got the Melbourne Festival, the International Arts Festival. Now, I know that, um, and I mightn't have got it quite right, but you are uh, increasingly... Uh, with an increasing huge international reputation uh, for beautiful architecture made from natural materials, made from the ground. What people probably don't know is that you were once on the National Indian Swimming Team and you were a champion swimmer. Tell us all. So, yes, I was a swimmer for about 10 years, but I capped it at some point uh, towards the later part of my career with being a professional marathon swimmer. So I swam across the English Channel in 1982. And, and you were you were very young. I, not so young. 18 is not that young. You know, to be a swimmer. It's not bad for a channel swim, though. So, yes, that, that was very much an integral part of my life. It's more like a way of life. And I've seen, I was just at the pool this, this, uh, this morning, and... Uh, it's fascinating because, you know, and of course now uh, with age and no pra not the same practice, uh, it was absolutely wonderful to see just these incredible swimmers. You know, in Australia there's, uh, I don't know, it's just the, the quality of swimming. Uh, for me, that's what I was actually enjoying in the public pool at MSAC. Uh, it was very special. Mm. Um, I know one of the questions that in this trying to make the connection between art and sport, um, I mean, were you were you going to be an architect when you were still swimming at that level? Did you know what your profession would be? 
No, I had no idea. I knew that I did not want to be a doctor uh, because my entire family were doctors and seeing the way that they worked, you know, from morning to late nights. And I said, no, this is not a practice that I want to enter into. Little did I know that getting into architecture <laughs> was probably, you know, uh, the same thing. Having said that, what was uh, interesting was during the period of swimming, we had to travel to different parts of India. Uh, and that became this sort of routine every year that once the nationals were over, we would then spend the next two months, depending on if you were in the eastern part of India or the western, north or south, uh, we'd sort of tooth comb the region and look at all the wonderful architecture, the food, you know, and, and, and language. And I think that was somewhere subliminally, that's what influenced me to enter into architecture. So the moment I stopped swimming at the, you know, once I'd done the English Channel at that point, uh, um, it was sort of a natural transition uh, into architecture. Mm. Um, it's totally incidental, but I should I should mention that um, uh, there is at Melbourne Festival, uh, up, at, up at the Melbourne University, there's a whole thing about um, Percy Granger, the composer, but also Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin. And in 2013, when I was doing the uh, directing the centenary of Canberra, I went to India. You'll have to remind me of the town where Burley Griffin went to, is, is actually buried. It's one of the northern towns, do you remember? I... I wouldn't know that. Yeah, it's a, he, he, actually, he actually went there um, to design and build the library of a university town in India and died of peritonitis there. So, and what we discovered was the most amazing gathering of young Indian architecture students who knew all about Walter Burley Griffin and everything he'd done there and we got to see some houses that he designed there. It was absolutely fantastic, fantastic experience. I must look that up now. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's really interesting. But David, your one of your questions to me when we first thought we'd have an opportunity to talk to BJ today was talking about the concept of flow and whether there's something in the body that Vijoy would have had as a swimmer that somehow translated to his approach to mm -hmm. architecture. Mm -hmm. I'll leave the conversation to you for a moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in how one's physical life affects or prescribes one's professional practice. So for me, when I played football, you, probably, you, you may not have ever seen an AFL game, but basically there's 36 players on the field and uh, I would uh, full back. So you're the, def the last line of defence for your team and you have to play against the full forward. And uh, they're a very particular personality, the full forward. So you, you, what you're doing is you're watching, you're watching the whole game unfold in front of you. And the game is essentially chaos. It's, it's chaos. It's 34 other players chasing a ball around, trying to, to get a result. And I, re I really understood... I mean, it really kind of affected me because you have to get used to uh, absorbing pressure. You have to get used to being able to read movement mm -hmm. and you have to get used to being able to uh, back yourself. But actually the thing that really I understood most of all is you had to understand and appreciate chaos. Mm -hmm. And for me as an artist, I think chaos is quite integral to my practice. I, I often don't know what's coming or w where I'm going to and often try and get into that space of not knowing because I feel that that's probably the most productive place to be. And I think the reason why I'm comfortable in that space of chaos is because I was trained over and over again. Every time I played football, I was trained to actually 
read the chaos and work out at what, what and look for a point of entry into the chaos mm -hmm. so that I could have a positive effect on it that would serve my intention or the intention of my team. So it really had a kind of, you know, the, it, it, it taught me quite a lot. So I'm, maybe I can reframe the idea of chaos. I mm -hmm. call it unpredictability. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think the training for for anything, uh, and particularly for a sports person, be it football or uh, a tennis, uh, is also this idea of anticipation, this mm -hmm. idea of being attentive to unpredictability, which mm -hmm. means that you are in a state of constant observation. Uh, and there's a beautiful, uh, an ice hockey player called Wayne Gretzky, mm -hmm. uh, and you know he was always at the puck. He was mm -hmm. always there before the puck got there. Mm -hmm. So, what he said was that you know he's not interested in in where the puck is, but where it is going to be. Yeah. Uh, and I think so. You know, this idea of flow. Mm -hmm. uh, one is of course the sense of the the physical itself, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and how that translates into a, maybe the practice of what I do because I often. Uh, use uh, the body as a as a as a measure, uh, both viscerally and physically. Uh, mm -hmm. Physically, in terms of just the sheer energy that it would take for your body to enact or or, or sort of make something, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time connected to this idea of a visceral, because you want to use the most economical way of that those kinds of movements, mm -hmm. and in that way you sort of store or conserve energy, mm -hmm. which then allows you to get greater distance. Mm. So mm. I think they're all uh, in some way linked. Uh, uh, and how, do, how does that translate, I guess? And so it's just the sheer practice uh, of, of, of uh, being in the pool. Uh, I think it's more an inward journey. Yes. You know? you, yeah. It's because being a swimmer, the hard part uh, about being a swimmer is you don't get to talk to people yeah. for like a good uh, four hours of practice, yeah. you know, two in the morning, two in the evening, and yeah. it's it's a, more, a very singular sport yes. in, in, in that sense. Yeah. Uh, but what I took from that was another aspect which for me is very important in, in the profession that I'm in is resilience, mm -hmm. you know, or, or tenacity. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are all these forces, and like you were, you know, describing the game, and mm. there are all these forces that are coming at you, and things, and you called it chaos, and things are changing all the time, and you have to, in some way, find a structure in this chaos. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what you're responding to. You mm. you you become part of the structure of that chaos. Uh, so, in the same way, uh, I think, in in the profession of architecture, you know, there are different forces: political forces, economic forces material forces, uh, human forces in terms of the, you know, the manpower that's involved in putting it together, and they're constantly shifting. Uh, and so the idea again being that, you know, the concept of the seed that remains sort of central to you, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's an alignment uh, mm. that's within one's own body. Mm. Uh, I think paying attention to that in relationship to all these moving forces. So that's, I mean, my process so that's the kind of link that I would make to how sports enable me to continue yep. it's more an idea for practice yes it can be sport it can be art yes. it can be uh, music yes uh, or something else yes you know? I'm very curious when when you uh, when you stand in different parts of this creation do do you get a 
different feeling if you stand in different parts to it? Do you get a different feeling when you step out of it and are outside it? Are there points that you that kind of affect you more than others? That would naturally because it's a three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. But again, just to give you some sense of it, the the oculus mm -hmm. is slightly off center, mm -hmm. and it's not dead on center of a square. Uh, also, it's rotated, and what this allows for is a sense of rotation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, even though it's pretty symmetrical, yeah. but because of the shift in the oculus off the center, it creates very particular kinds of spaces that are aligned mm -hmm. to yeah. the sun, aligned to, uh, you know, the, the air that's passing through. Uh, and of course, it's also a seasonal change. A few days ago, we had rains, and mm -hmm. so the structure in the rains uh, is very different in the manner you occupy it. You sort of huddle more together in mm -hmm. the center, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to when it's sunny, what we're seeing right now, and you mm -hmm. sort of dissipate and sort of it, it grows out from the center. Mm -hmm. So I think what's important is that, just like sport and you know uh, or art, uh, it's uh, it has to be responsive to uh, possibilities of you know spatial conditions. Yeah. That, that are influenced or that are informed by the forces that are acting on it. Mm -hmm. So you, actually by uh, building the oculus in this way you're, you're uh, enabling momentum. That's right. Very, very good stuff. Has somebody Googled which city it was that Burley Griffin... Um, I, I give a task to somebody, which city? So Walter Burley Griffin is the man who designed Canberra, our national capital. What is it? Lucknow. Lucknow. So it was in Lucknow. So you can sort of see houses. Thank you very much. You knew that without looking it up, without searching Mr. Google. Congratulations. You win the door prize for today. It's <laughs> a big bag of nothing. Congratulations. <laughs> no door prizes. We are now going to see somebody whose practice has embodied itself very, very physically in a form of physical performance or dance, but who also has some interesting sporting stories. Please welcome to our presence Yumi Umamare. Ha, ha, ha. 
don't don't tell me that a sportsman has more energy than that. Yumi, come and sit down here. For a minute, um, you had plenty of breath to dance and blow at the same time. Very, very expert, Yumi. Have you got enough breath to talk, or do yes, you need no, a no, moment? No, no, so your discipline in dance is actually highly physical in any case. Can you just tell us about your your own discipline in dance, which is where I or performance where I first met you? Yes. Um, <coughs> I did a classical ballet, but also in Japan called Dance Ko Buto, which is lots of strong um, <clears throat> impression of uh, sort of a suppression to release, but also holding. Originally started as called Dance of Darkness, so it's like a lot of a dark side and difficult side we intentionally open up to describe. So <clears throat> when Robin asked about the sports and dance. I thought it was some macabreness of this expression and full onness, and I saw some videos of men just run naked onto the space and yeah, you know, like that kind of. And even the referee has to chase him, and then a lot of things was very physical and almost like a, a madness. So I just wanted to finding the madness in a, within the discipline, sort of shift between the two. But but you also my understanding is that you also did play sport baseball and softball seriously. Yes, and track and field I did <laughs> quite seriously. Yes, I did. What came first, the sport or the art? Um, I did a classical ballet when I was nine, but then after that, always I was very physical, and then I wanted to do gymnastic, but the only class they have was a classical ballet class, so I didn't have a chance to go to gymnastic. But yeah, I enjoyed the ballet, but in the end I was just really into the sports, but in the end also find the limit of the sports, find a lot of um, limit of the record or, you know, some sort of a certain degree you have to reach. But in arts, it's limitless, which I think, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a great point because I often try to understand what the different experience of art and sport is. And certainly for me, going to um, a football match there is there is a winner and a loser. There mm. is somebody that kicks more goals and points, mm -hmm. or in other sports, somebody jumps higher. It's measurable. Yes, that's Whereas right. the difficulty that many people have with the arts, I think, as opposed to sport, is that sport is measurable and there's some satisfaction even in winning if you lost. It's clear that you lost. Whereas in the arts, there's no winners or losers. You mm. can't... I mean, you can sort of say who's had more experience. If you've got a lot of experience in the arts yourself, you can tell whether something is authentic and original or just a bad copy of something that the other artist didn't know about, etc. But in fact, <coughs> there aren't really winners and losers. And so it's, a, it's that slightly uncomfortable space, the grey area, mm. uh, the, the, the black and white area. And that's one of the reasons maybe why there's a division mm. that in order to enjoy the arts to their full you have to be prepared for there to be no real answers. David what's your take yeah, on that? I was really interested to hear Yumi t say you know when she was young she you know is going to choose um, uh, uh, you know she wanted to do gymnastics but then she chose uh, ballet and it reminded me of a conversation I had with one of my neighbours kids a couple of years ago and I, I said so what um, what sports are you doing at the moment? She said oh, I'm doing basketball and ballet. 
So at a certain age, any physical activity is sport. And I'm very curious at the point at which those things start to separate, where you actually start to identify them as something artistic and something as sporting. Mm. Because actually I think if we were to be more childlike in the way that we looked at physical activity, uh, through that prism actually, you, you, what you experience, you don't even talk about measurement, you just talk about uh, feeling and viscerality and um, how it makes you feel and how it kind of connects your identity and, you know, it's, it's much more, it's, it's when you start to kind of extract it from, you know, how, who and what you are, that's when I think it becomes entirely problematic and also that's when you can make a lot of money out of it. Because I think money is the thing that you're talking about because sport actually is a, a massive commercial spinner. Yeah, I wonder too, and I might introduce the topic a bit through you, me first, and then come to B-Joy. Um, we're, we're just going through a kind of interesting phase of um, B-Joy. The, the, the Australian Football League has just endorsed a female league. And so for the first time next early next year, there are going to be women players playing AFL. And this is not just a matter of the sport itself or the women playing it, but really marks a pretty profound cultural change in Australia as a whole because the AFL has been for such a long time a sort of bastion of ochre male thing, even though AFL is all, uh, Australian rules has always been a place where women could go, unlike, unlike football in Europe. Um, I went to the football first with my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, etc. I wanted to ask, what's the, is there any gender division around sport in Japan? I don't know, but when I was at uni, a lot of women started doing soccer and all that rugby, and they really started doing a lot. And I was always in a team of people who's a little bit more mixed. I mean, track, track and field, definitely, and softball or baseball I was in Australia was all women's, so like a more emphasis of the women's um, strength in a way. So I think I wasn't feeling much division, more like em start empowering more women when I was sort of early 20s and but stuff. But in, in your parents' era, for instance? Maybe, yeah. I mean, all sort of a national... Like, I just did a bit of a mimicky version, sumo wrestling. That's all women, uh, men. <laughs> yeah, will there ever be a women's sumo well, wrestling have, team? It's only a notation of a little bit of a sexual, like a little bit of a making up with a women's sumo with a bit of a slightly porn touch, you know? Like so a bit of girl-on-girl girl action. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so it's always a bit of um, sexism going on a little bit, but, yeah. Bijoy in India, what's, what's, your, what's your sense of the... Is, is there a gender division in sport in India? Uh, there is, but firstly, just to put things in perspective, as a nation, we're not really a sporting nation. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, uh, and it's actually very recent, I would say, you know, in the last 50 years that you actually see women uh, participating in sports. But now here's the interesting thing. Uh, the top athletes, you know, uh, are, have always been women who've either won at the Olympics, you know, maybe a silver medal, be it athletics, badminton, uh, you know. So there's, there's, there's certain sports that are akin more to women participation. Uh, and so you see that. But I think the most successful sportsmen, more than the males, have been the women in the last, I would say, 10 years. Um, it's really interesting that you say that, I mean, because in Australia we're acutely aware of the success of Indian cricket, of course, but it's interesting that you say that, that it's not so much sport. Therefore, would you, would you say, as a generalisation, that the arts and culture play a much more integral part to Indian life than sport? 
I think it's more a way of life, uh, the idea of art and culture. Uh, in, 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 so if you're in, in, in West Bengal, uh, every household uh, has in the household, uh, you know, someone in the family is either a musician or a dancer. It's just, it's just one of these things. Uh, but also you find this commonality in the South, and these are the older cultures of the country, so it's very much a part, but it's again, it's something that's been cultivated from a very young age, uh, and it's more familial uh, in, in its participation. And of course, in pursuit of that, then you find, like for example, the musicians that played today, you know, that kind of refinement and, and, and quality. Uh, so yes, the arts and cultures are you know, fundamentally the way we live our lives. And is it still, I mean, in, inside families, as, as in Japan, I think, many families associated with the cultural or arts practice and it's handed on, does that still exist in India? So in India we have this, and very similar to Japan, it's a master-student you know, master relationship. It's called Guru Shiksha Parampara in, in, in Hindi, uh, which means, you know, the relationship between the student and the master. And in some ways... That's how I know that you actually, as a student, submit to your master. And so that's been the nature of how anything has been taught, uh, and especially with music and dance. Uh, you kind of, it's, they're called gharanas or like house, you know, homes or house. I mean, a direct translation of that would be a, a home. Uh, and that's what's been, that's what's cultivated. So it's passed on, you know, generation to generation to generation. Uh, and sometimes, of course, there are secrets that are kept. In, in terms of very particular nuances uh, that are only shared by, you know, to the disciples or to the students, and that's how it, there's a sort of idea of continuity. Mm. Yumi, we, we, in, in that submitting, I, I don't see you doing a lot of submitting to a master. Um, I was, did, I was. Doing did you, you had to, but yeah. was it important for you to come outside of Japan to have a freer voice? Yes, I think so. Context of uh, because submitting is not because of their hierarchy high, but they because of the skill and their knowledge. So I think that sort of submission is important. But I found that he has more, little bit more freedom to see rather than from the beginning start as a submissive and senpai, which is always elders and also in a religious ritual always has got hierarchy. So like a lot of sports also even start as a quite religious part of it. So it's always hierarchy. So you have to understand that system, I think, yeah. Does, does that have any relationship, David, to the way in a footy team the players do have to submit to the coach oh, before they develop their own voice? Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, what, what you, the, the sort of master, the deshi relationship in, you know, Japan, for example. Uh, so I studied with a Japanese um, uh, theatre director, Suzuki Tadashi, who uh, Yumi knows well. And one of the things that I really loved about that, and I was I was probably 30 when I, I went and, and, and uh, uh, started working with him, and one of the things I absolutely loved about it, it was, it was hardcore physical work. It was actually the closest thing to uh, AFL, pre-season AFL, that I've ever done in my life. Suzuki was the coach, and he would tell you, uh, if, you if he told you to jump, you jump. He would test you psychologically. You, he would ostracise you. The games he played were very similar to the way that a coach would play, would 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 play with his uh, players. Um, I do think now, though, that there is a real shift in the um, in the dynamics around, uh, particularly football, but I would say team sports in general. In 
in a lot of Western countries where actually there's been a kind of cultural change. And one of the very interesting things which was mentioned by the Western Bulldogs coach when he won the premiership, he started, he used this word that I'd never ever heard an AFL coach use ever in my life. And he said, yeah, I'm just, I'm, one of the things I'm trying to bring to the team is empathy. And I thought, empathy? <laughs> what do you mean empathy? How do you, how do you bring empathy in a football culture? But if you see that team play, you understand what he means because they're, they play in a very, very different way. And I was kind of very curious because one of the things you, is that you talk about in, in your work is, is that, well, has been talked about in your work is the, the, the sort of emotional response or the empathy that you, you kind of bring or that space that you occupy when you start to make a work. Yeah, I think in any collaboration, yes. you know, and so be it a team sport, football, yeah. or, uh, and this understanding of empathy yeah. is more a sort of shared relationship, you know. Mm. Uh, there's a reason why all of them have come together. It's like a free jazz band, right? Yeah. For the music to be played the way you require empathy. Mm. It's a sort of anticipation and understanding uh, of the other, yeah. you know, and how to sort of bring all of that together to make uh, make an ensemble, to make, you know, uh, a composition from that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think empathy is extremely important, but it's, again, uh, it's very particular because, again, this idea of being aware mm. uh, and observant mm. to your your team member, but also one of the things that I want uh, when we talked about submission was it's more an act of humility, <laughs> you know. I think, so, when you sort of put these words together, it creates a certain atmosphere. Uh, and so mm. be it sport or mm. architecture or art or mathematics, you know, you'd have a certain quality that comes with that. Mm -hmm. So I think the words in some way contain or uh, uh, there's a certain quality, uh, an mm. ethical quality or a value that's embedded in the sort of uh, the nature of these words of, yes. you know, that, that we've been talking yeah. about. Let's bring Gideon into the conversation. Gideon is uh, is very used to the empathy required to make ensemble work. So, Gideon, come in and share. No, we don't have to shift. Just sit down and we'll all share microphones. We'll have empathy with each other as panel members and be sharing and caring. Um, Gideon... This, this quality, it's very interesting for me to think about you as a choreographer and artistic director requiring an empathetic approach amongst colleagues mm. versus surfing, which strikes me as an extremely individualistic practice. Yeah, um, surfing is, uh, is very solitary. Um, even in the lineup, you are with a, often, in, you know, particularly on, on uh, reef breaks or point breaks, you're with a you know, you're in the lineup with a whole bunch of other people. But I think the communication is actually very limited. Um, but I began, actually, I began as a swimmer, as a competitive swimmer when I was a child. And so swimming up and down that lane in the morning and night, and even, even when you're competing, I mean, your vision is somewhat limited as well. And so it, it was kind of a, an easy extension of that, um, of that relation to that physicality. Um, it's certainly not a, a team thing. So but did you become a, a choreographer so that you could talk to other people? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, um, I don't know. I, I grew up on a kibbutz and maybe that was a very social, you know, the dynamics, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't really be solitary on a kibbutz. It's just, <laughs> it's just impossible. Uh, so I'm a fairly socialised human being and, um, uh, you know, I began as a dancer and, and, and like 
people were saying, I mean, the, the kind of uh, the grit and the training and the determination in sport and as a person practicing in the arts or in performance is, is actually quite similar. Um, you know, you, you need that level of determination and there are no other options but to, to, to continue if you're going to be serious in that. Um, I think it, it, it really changes once you're kind of creating work and you're not necessarily a performer with a very, like, like a virtuoso musician or, or someone. Um, uh, uh, sport and arts have similarities, but they also have great differences. And when you were speaking earlier about the grey area, um, about when we when we look at art or when we participate in that, um, I mean, a lot of sport is really based around competition, and it is based around winning and losing. And a lot of art, while it has got some disciplines of sport, is not really concerned with that. And it's 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 another human trait of existence, which is, I think, a, a sense of um, trying to understand who we are in the world we live in, uh, and that's a level of um, introspection, um, contemplation, um, that maybe watching sport doesn't have that same, that's, that same relationship to. I, I, must, I must say too that I was lucky enough to drive in the last Grand Prix that was held in Adelaide. So I w was in the celebrity race. And um, we had to do advanced driver training at Virginia for a week in advance. And there were a whole lot of gold Olympians and people like Sam Newman were there doing, doing that, along with uh, um, uh, Mandaway Unipingu and uh, Poppy King and Maggie Beer. You know, it was a really interesting mix. And it was then that I understood, when I watched the way the athletes approached fast driving and technique, um, that I was a completely different human being. They had no fear. I mean, all of us in the arts, we gunned it. I went, you know, 180 down Brabham Strait. It was fantastic. But we always came last. And these, these, these sports people jumped in and they wanted to win. And I realised that I really, really didn't have a competitive bone in my body compared to them. They just did seem to me like different animals entirely. <laughs> it was just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 there's a, there's a difference between kind of fitness and 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 competitive sport too. And there's a lot of people like me at the moment. You know, I'm I'm into I'm interested in being physical, understanding my body, but I'm not necessarily interested in competing so much. Um, yeah, so it, it's it's quite a it's quite a different thing. And and uh, but in in some parts of the arts, like in dance, in ballet particularly, it is very competitive. Um, and I think. You, you, you know, in, you're mostly competing against yourself. I mean, that's that's the biggest competition. But within that, there's, it's it's a hierarchical heritage art where you you know you really have to work your way up to the top. Uh, you know, 90% of men and women in ballet companies aren't doing what they really wanted to do. You know, that they, they are. It's only that you know there's only about five or six people in an 80-member company who are actually doing what they want, what they imagine doing when they were, when they were a child. And so, you know, yeah. it's a tough environment. Um, one of the things that we haven't really touched on and is an entire afternoon session, again, something that David and I will incorporate into future examinations of art and sport, and that is around the injury regimes because we start to see a whole lot of similarities. I mean, this miracle that you see with the footballers these days that they break their leg and they're back playing in four weeks. Um, are you aware of some of the, the contact between between the medical stuff, or David, you had a, a good example of that recently. I think wasn't it somebody from AFL went to the uh, the, ba the Australian Ballet? Yeah, I, I, and actually that so that story is uh, I think it was a Sydney Swans player or a Collingwood player 
couldn't uh, resolve an injury over about a year and then ended up going to the Oz Ballet. And there was a conditioning uh, expert there and he spent about four months with her and got back on the park. But it reminded me that when I was a very young actor and had just moved from playing football, the Collingwood Football Club had employed, had sent their uh, whole team to a suburban classical ballet, your classic classical ballet, you know, archetype. And she would get them on the bar just for flexibility because they actually understood that they couldn't sustain all their hamstring injuries anymore. They actually need to change that approach. So I think that goes back a long way, that sort of, you know, I think ballet is definitely one of those things where people, where you sort of look at classical ballet, something where you look at and you go, well, that requires a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, elite level of training that I can recognise and therefore, as a sports player, it, it sort of, it's, it, that has a synergy with me. So I think there's definitely that, that connection be between the two. And I think there's a lot of, you know, interest in how um, the, the physical life of, a, of elite uh, sports people or elite artists actually can, you can learn quite a lot from them. They speak a lot to each other. And wouldn't it be great to get the conversation around to the point where, where we are away from the point, further than the point we are at the moment, where to be an elite sports person is the best thing you can be in the world, but to be an elite artist is somehow being a wanker. You know, yeah. that, that elite in the arts has a, it's got a dirty connotation, <laughs> something privileged and not good, but an elite sports person is the same. It's very weird. Yes, but I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that because it's just a conundrum for me. But actually, one of the things I think that sports are unbelievably good advocates for sport. And in the arts, we're really poor advocates for the arts. And I think actually the, what we're talking about is not so much the disciplines themselves, but actually the way in which we, uh, as inhabitants of the art space, talk to and communicate what is awesome about the arts. And we can learn a lot from sports people and how they do that. You just look at the, uh, the Sports Commission and look at the gender balance on the Sports Commission, I think two years ago, and it was basically 50-50. Mm. I mean, we, you know, so, many, so much of the time we actually can't sustain that in the arts. And, and Gideon, I wanted to ask you, just purely in your own body, does your own body work differently as a surfer than as a dancer or a choreographer? Um, I've definitely found that dancing helps my surfing a lot. Uh, surfing certainly doesn't help my dancing. I, I don't know why. I, I, wish it, I, I wish it would, but for some reason uh, it, it doesn't... It's, it's a one-way kind of relationship. Um, but, yeah, the more yoga... I do, and the more um, and dancing, um, I'm a much better surfer. I'm a much more I'm much more connected to what's happening. I mean, surfing is really also a very much a response to uh, a dynamic that is in nature that is not that you're not in control of. It's it's very similar to other extreme like skiing or sports like where things are coming at you very very fast and you're responding very very quickly to that, um, and the more kind of proprioceptor control you have of your body and your muscles and which you do gain through through these um, from from dance the better off you are but somehow it doesn't really translate back to dancing so much I don't uh, know why. sounds like a show that you might do for yourself that is dancing helps my surfing you know yeah. it's just yeah. Sound, yeah. sounds like a very Gideon show to me yeah. well you know, I've met Richard Tonietti out in the out at Bells a number of times I mean, he travels a he travels a surfboard with him with 
with ACO all the time. Kind of a Stradivarius in one hand and a and surfboard a board, in the he, other. Well, he literally does at the airport. And um, and I know that they've timed their performances in Melbourne um, exactly so he can go to Bell's in the morning and arrive back uh, at the Arts Centre in time for a show. Um, and it's, it's like clockwork. He absolutely, you know... And, and I, I do believe that he gets absolutely inspired and thrilled from being in the surf. And um, I, I'm sure that translates to his performance as well. Yeah, it come, comes back a little bit, doesn't it, to the chaos and the, the unpredictability that you two were talking about, that idea of there's nothing you can do to tell what kind of wave is going to come and who's next to you. So it's about that awareness, it's about response and resilience, all those things. Actually, the, the other story about Richard Tonieri is he's made a, an incredible video which is, and the, the so there's the, I don't know what you call the surfboard that's got no... Um, yeah, no fins. No fins, um, like finless yeah, surfboards. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, the way in which you control object at, underneath your feet is quite amazing. And he set some um, some of his music to uh, the, these kind of, you know, these surfers, and including himself. And it's just YouTube, but it's quite amazing. The other point about surfing is that there's Stephanie Gilmore, who's one of our great, you know, uh, sports people and world surf champion. She did this whole series of um, uh, little films called Water Dancer, and that's how she describes herself. She describes herself as dancing on the water, and she was so kind of, you know, enamoured with this idea that she did a whole series of um, interviews with uh, choreographers. So she's gone off and, you know, talking about, you know, so... This is how I feel like when I'm when I'm surfing. I feel like I'm dancing, and she does. It, there is an, another awesome surfer called Leah Dawson who actually really is dancing on the water. You should have a look at her. You just watch three minutes of her, and it'll just blow your mind. That so longboarder. She uh, she's she's a shortboarder, oh, right. and when she surfs, her whole body. She, so Stephanie Gilmore surfs uh, on the wave. Leah Dawson is the wave. <laughs> so it's a, and it's a beautiful kind of artistic expression in and of itself because it brings surfing and art together and you can kind of see in that moment that there's a, it's like a transcendence. Um, we're pretty much out of time. I don't know if anyone's got a particularly burning question. Um, if, you, if you do have a burning question, then maybe you could just come up and, uh, and approach it silently and quietly to our speakers. But as you can hear, this is a topic that has such depth and such richness and we can really explore it for a very long time in very complex and beautiful ways. So I really hope that David and I can, can move this idea forward and do some larger exposition about those connections between the sport in art or the art and sport. Would you please thank all of our speakers for being here today, but especially Bijoy for your great building. Thank you.